Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Echo Church. For those of you who are visiting, we're super glad you're here. Uh, we often get the question, what is Echo? Echo is just an arbitrary word. The reason we like it is because we actually serve as the living, breathing echo of God's love, the way in which we live out our lives. And so as we love other people, as we find peace in the storm, as we help other people find peace in the storm, we're not actually the source of that. We are a resonation of that. We reflect that. And so when we talk about echo, we talk about how each and every one of us is an echo of the Imago Dei, the image of God. He created us and allowed us to function and live at this spot for a particular reason. And we really hope as a church that we can help everyone identify that specific reason. Uh, just a couple things before we dive into uh, uh, this week's lesson. Um, there is a conference that, that Joe alluded to. He said it's next week. I guess it depends on your frame, frame of reference. Uh, I consider it this week. Uh, it starts this Friday. It's called Pure Desire. We've been, we've been promoting this for a while. We have a number of churches that have been promoting this. So I'm really, really excited about, about the conference. But what the Pure Desire Conference is, is a conference that addresses the issues that encompass, that surround sexual addiction. And, and the, you know, as we decided to step up to the plate and, and tackle that particular issue, I know I was extremely naive. I didn't understand the full spectrum of how much that issue affects people's lives. I know there are those in here that struggle with that, probably the majority of us. We are sexual beings, all right? And there's nothing wrong with that. We were created to be that way. It's just that Satan then finds his way in the midst of that. And he perverts it to his own will, man. He'll, and, he, and, and many times we find ourselves in a type of bondage that we just can't seem to find any hope. There's, there's no way we can, we, can, we can free ourselves from it. And the truth is this. By yourself, you probably can't. But in community, there's great hope. And so... Pure Desire Conference will be here. They're going to talk about um, the types of programs that they put on, but they're also going to uh, have a strong educational element. So it's really it's designed for people who are struggling with this issue and then also de designed for those who want to help lead people out of this particular issue. So if you haven't signed up for that, I really hope that you will. I have a couple more free passes that I can give out so you can find me after church and I'll give you the promo code for that. Open your Bibles, chapter Luke, or chapter Luke. <laughs> To the book of Luke, chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, says these particular words. It says, When Jesus came to the village of Nazareth. Now, keep in mind, he's just starting his ministry on earth. Like he's, he's had this horrible time <laughs> in a desert where he was tempted. We'll talk more about that next week. And he's, he, he's now deciding to launch into his ministry. He comes back to his hometown, this village of Nazareth, his boyhood home. He went, as usual, to the synagogue on the Sabbath. As usual means, you can see, this is, this is what he would do. This is what the people would do. He stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll. He found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll. He handed it back to the attendant. He sat down. 
All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak, and he said these words, The scripture that you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone spoke well of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips, but they said, how can this be? Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the son of the carpenter guy? Let's pray. God Almighty, Father, we come before you, we open up your word, and we just, we want you to draw us close. And as we are ourselves drawing closer and closer to Jesus, Stir your spirit. Help us to understand. Help us to understand the words that we, that we just read. Help us to understand what you were doing by allowing yourself to be poured into human form and placed on this earth. What does it mean to us? What does it mean to the world around us? Gracious God, we humbly ask that you just fill us with wisdom. Please be with us this morning. Lord, a personal prayer that you would allow me also to just clear out all the cobwebs and the things that are getting in the way, the noise around me as I deliver your word. May it be your words, Lord. May it simply be the resonation of whatever message you're wanting me to deliver. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, when I came back from Atlanta, um, which would have been in 2010, so my wife and I, we moved to Atlanta in 2001. We were going to have an adventure. Honestly, we were just going to go see what the world was like, just the two of us. We, were, uh, we weren't newly married. We'd been married for about uh, four years or so, uh, but we were excited. I mean, and so Lana, she went and got a job down in Atlanta before I found a job. I was still living in Missoula, and she found a job so quickly that she had to move down a couple months before me and live with an unmarried man so that she could be the nanny for his kids. That's not, you know, that's comfortable with me. I just... <laughs> Uh, but I, eventually I came down as fast as I could, and uh, I, I came down, we had an apartment, we had a cat, life was good, all the rest of it, and I was going to go to art school, and I was very excited about that, and then, surprise, no, she's not pregnant, but somebody across the country was pregnant, and we decided to adopt that child, which is my son, Cole. And so uh, our life immediately took a turn that we did not expect, and we found ourselves uh, on a journey that we thought would last about three to five years, staying there for 10 years. And in that time, Missoula began to change. People talk to me all the time. They're like, well, what's Missoula like? I'm like, well, actually, it used to just be this pokey little blue-collar town. We had three different mills, and, uh, you know, it's like there was not much to do, so you rode your bike everywhere kind of a thing. Uh, that is not the city we have today. I love the city that we have today. But have you ever been gone for so long that by the time you return to the place that was once familiar to you, it's very different? It could be your home. You might have left. You come back and you're like, what's that smell? You know, or, or whatever it might be. You know, it's like you start to realize things are different, right? And that's what happened with Missoula. All of a sudden, the, the, the price, you know, uh, real estate prices went through the roof. Um, it, was, it was such a different town. And I need you to sort of capture the essence of that and pour that into the fact that as Jesus is here, right here, he's walking into a culture, and when we talk about the Jewish culture, many times we're talking about a culture that's been around since the time of Moses, right? Law of Moses. These aren't the same people. In fact, honestly, this isn't even the same religion. 
and I'll explain. The Jewish people look vastly different after the exile than before. They had a new temple. They had these things called synagogues. They had these people called Pharisees and Sadducees. They had this thing called the Sanhedrin. And they had a thing called the Talmud, which we're going to talk about in just a second. But what am I talking about with the exile? Basically, God's people, they kind of uh, came out of Egypt, let my people go. Most of you know that kind of story. And God took them into a place that was flowing with milk and honey. It was called Canaan. And that was their land. He had promised that land to them through Abraham. He had spoken three different promises to Abraham. One was for land. One was that there would be a tremendous nation which would become the Jewish people, the Hebrew nation. And then the third was that there would be a seed that would eventually be the Messiah. So these three promises he gave to Abraham and they manifest themselves when they finally got to this land and they were living there. But God told them, he said, listen, as long as you follow me, as long as you obey my commandments, as long as I'm your God, your only God, not these idols around you, things will be good. And they did, for the most part. They went through a whole bunch of tumultuous times. They had some kings, and they were mostly good kings at the beginning. Eventually, the kingdom would split. The northern, the northern part of the kingdom, they would fall away pretty quickly. The southern part would be like in and out, in and out, in and out of, of being good, being bad, that type of thing. And eventually, they also would fall. And when they fell, they would find themselves being taken away into exile and that's what we're talking about with exile babylon eventually would come down and destroy jerusalem they would destroy the temple they were kind of provoked but they would destroy the temple and the jewish people were taken away from their homeland in a very grotesque way rings through the noses and led like cattle that type of thing over here to babylon and they lived there for hundreds of years and while they lived there things changed their land changed, the people changed. So Jesus is going to walk into something that's very different than how it was before, if you're following me. So I'm going to have my son's, son's uh, handout. You got it? Oh, good, cool. Uh, I have handouts for you. So this is what I've been doing every week. Uh, several of you have come up to me, and you've been very complimentary. You're like, your teaching style is different. You know, yeah, I'm giving you notes. How about that? So uh, I'm giving you some notes, and I'm going to really blast through this pretty quickly. The, the whole gist of the series that we are in is called Knowing Jesus. And by knowing Jesus, I have talked many times about what it means to communicate with other people. And the fact that while you are communicating with other people, there's all sorts of noise that's in the channel that gets in the way. Sometimes it prevents communication from happening. Sometimes it distorts the message from flowing. But by drawing closer to each other, which you could do physically, and you do this all the time. Wait, what? I couldn't hear you? And you draw closer to each other. Your worldviews come closer and closer. There's less noise. And in the same way, we are drawing closer and closer to Jesus. But it also means that many times, you have to work. You got to work. If you're going to know somebody, if you're going to try to walk into their worldview, you got to know where they come from. Last week, you know, we were talking about the land in which he was going to walk on this earth. We also talked about some of the customs. We also talked about the Roman rule. We talked about a number of different things that are going to be factors in, in trying to understand Jesus. But today, we're going to talk about the kinds of people. He was a Jew. and The, the, the people that he would call family, that he would call friends, the people that he would minister to. So let's get to it. There are over 300 prophecies. When we say prophecies, there are things mentioned in the Old Testament. In your Bibles, there are two testaments. The Old Testament, which most people kind of grunge, I mean, 
uh, grimace, you know, and they're sort of like, ah, I don't like reading the Old Testament. Actually, the book of Genesis is really fun to read. Um, There's a lot of chapters, but it's really easy to read. And so Genesis and then Exodus, Exodus is pretty good too, then Leviticus. Groan, right? It's all laws, which we're going to talk about in just a second, right? So this Old Testament is on one side. The New Testament is kind of about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, uh, is kind of part two, but in many ways, it's the fulfillment of so many of the prophecies. And so there's a fantastic chart. For those of you who have the Wayfinding Bible, which we give out for free, which is a very expensive Bible, by the way, and we'll be happy to give you one, uh, I included one of the charts that they have on there. It's fantastic. It's a visual of showing you here are all these prophecies that have occurred in the Old Testament, and they find their way being fulfilled and referenced in the New Testament. But here's the point. The people knew what was coming. But more importantly, there were four main things that essentially themes that were very, very prominent. That this Messiah, for for one thing, this Messiah would be human. He'd have to be. He'd have to be human. The second thing is that he would be part of what we call the Messianic Covenant line. There's a couple Bible words for you. But essentially the Messiah is flowing from Abraham, okay? Abraham was promised something, and God said, from your seed, right, the Messiah would come. So the Messiah has to come from the seed of Abraham. So we're having to to sort of follow that. The third thing is that he would also be royal. He would be a king, which means he'd have to come from the line of David. Yeah. So that's a requirement that's going to need to be fulfilled. And then the fourth thing is this, that he was deity isaiah would talk about this that he was deity that he was god and that's gonna be something that's difficult for people to to wrap their minds around and so what we have is we have these two genealogies and that's what's on the back side of your your page i didn't really actually list the the genealogies if you want to read about them you can we're not going to dive into it but matthew 1 and then also luke chapter 3 Those are the two main geologies. Remember, Mark was very uh, short and specific in the way he wrote. He just skipped it, right? And then John, John, we don't even know what John's thinking. He just goes into this world of there was light and it conquered darkness, right? That kind of thing. But you have these two scholars that are saying, no, no, there were two genealogies. And Matthew's genealogy differs from Luke's genealogy. Luke's list gives the physical descent of Jesus, Luke's genealogy is going to go all the way back to Abraham? No. Who's Luke writing to? We talked about this. The Greeks. For the most part. They're not going to care about Abraham. They are, however, going to care if this is God in human form. So the humanity is extremely important. He takes it all the way back to who? Adam. The very, very beginning Matthew's list, Matthew's list is different. It's going to go all the way back to Abraham. Matthew is writing specifically to the Jews. That's going to be a very important detail. Remember, one of the the words that Matthew likes to use is fulfillment, right? And when he's referring to fulfillment, he's referring to the fulfillment of prophecies. Matthew is setting up the Jews saying, listen, this is who he was, and he's going to talk about the important side of it. Also keep in mind this. That when we're talking about the physical side of things, we're going to be starting with which of Jesus' parents? Well, you can't start with Joseph because Jesus wasn't actually from Joseph. Who was he from? 
God, right? How do you trace that genealogy? <laughs> no, you got to start with Mary. So the physical genealogy is going to start with Mary. But with Matthew, we're talking about legalities. If you're talking to the Jews, they don't recognize Mary necessarily. When they talk about the word begat in the Bible, you see it all the time. And so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. They're talking about the male lineage. No offense, ladies. They're just talking about the male lineage. Sometimes when they use the word begat, they're not just even talking about the son. They're talking about maybe the grandson or maybe the great-great-grandson, right? But it's really important that it come from the father. So therefore, Joseph actually plays a significant role because wherever Joseph comes from is going to be really important to the Jews. Well, it just so happens Joseph comes from some pretty important people, mainly King David. It's, it's incredibly important that he comes from King David. He was prophesied that he would come from that lineage. Do you see how all of this adds up? Now, I don't want to park on here for, for too long. I do want to emphasize just a few of the, uh, um, the things and the ways in which we would fulfill those themes. I gave you four different themes. The first being that he was to be the human race. And once again, I said Luke emphasizes that. But also what Matthew brings out is Matthew doesn't skip over the, the dirty little details, Right? Who's included in Matthew's lineage? Well, prostitutes, such as Rahab, the adultery of Bathsheba that David has, and all sorts of other strange little historical episodes, right? That's narrowing in on the fact that this is a human, right? This is, this is humanity. The second thing is that it would be a messianic covenant. And so once again, there are at least... 18 verses throughout Matthew that refer to Jesus being the anointed. And when you talk about the anointed, you're talking about who? The Messiah. The Messiah. So Jesus, uh, Matthew is going to make a huge point of the fact, guess what? This child, this person, this human being is actually the anointed one. He's the one we've been waiting for. The one that was promised to Abraham. Regarding the fact that it comes from the royal line of David, I already mentioned that... Um, um, Mary's bloodline actually traces back to, uh, to King David in Luke's account. But then also, um, Matthew repeats the phrase, uh, um, the son of David, uh, when regarding who Jesus was. The fourth element regarding deity, uh, this is found throughout all four different Gospels. Um, but specifically in Matthew, uh, he's, Matthew is especially careful to guard the the, the truth that Jesus was deity in Matthew 1.20, it says that Jesus' birth was the result of a supernatural element, okay? And that is emphasized. We celebrate that all the time with Christmas. Uh, and the fact that um, he's emphasizing this detail is really important because one of the heresies that's going to come out at the, you know, at the tail end of, of the New Testament is going to be this thing called Gnosticism. Basically, it's this. It's too difficult to imagine especially for Greeks, that a god would pollute himself by being on the earth with human beings. So really, Jesus wasn't a god at all. Or maybe he was, but he wasn't a human at all. He, he, wasn't, he was an apparition, right? He, people, whatever they thought they saw of Jesus, it wasn't really real, because how could that happen? And so you have these authors who are making this clear. No, no, no. This is a deity. This is a human this is from the royal line of David. This is also somebody who's going to be fulfilling the promises of Abraham. You have all of that playing out, and you can kind of see where it is in, in the, the sheet that I gave you. So I give you all of that to say Jesus has 
All of these things building up, building up, building up, and, and God places him right on the earth. And we're going to see what Jesus does with it. But he steps foot on soil that is not the same as before the exile. Think about this. There's such dramatic changes that have happened after the exile. You don't, you don't have the word Pharisee in your Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Most of the time when we're talking about Pharisees, people don't conjure up really happy thoughts, right? Jesus just blasts them in Matthew chapter 23. But what about the Old Testament? There's no mention of them. There's no mention of Sadducees. You always, talk, you always hear about the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they're at war, that kind of thing, right? There's no mention of them. Not in the Old Testament. Did they exist in Old Testament times? Yeah. But there's no mention of them anywhere. Well, who are they? And where did they come from? What about this thing called the Sanhedrin? It's, it's kind of like a court. Most of them happen to be Sadducees. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But what is this? And, the, and, and here's where I want to go with this. I wasn't sure how to define it. Because if I say that this religion that Jesus is walking into is Judaism, and you look up Judaism, you're going to find Judaism goes all the way back to the law of Moses. The problem is, whatever it was that, that the religious climate was when Jesus was there, it wasn't the same as the law of Moses. You didn't have Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Talmud, and any of that kind of thing. You had the law of Moses. You had priests. You had sacrifices that were happening in the temple, right? You didn't have synagogue. So this religion's different than this religion. Do you hear what I'm saying? And so I just put it like this. I said Judaism was different than the law of Moses. I didn't know how else to, de how else to describe it. But it's fascinating because the differences that we find in terms of what makes this the way it functions over here versus this over here has a lot to do with what man brings into the picture. The uh, historian Josephus would even comment it on it. He would, he would talk about and emphasize that the Jewish culture had practices and observances rather than religious beliefs. He, they would associate apostasy with a failure to observe Jewish law. They would observe that, he would observe that the requirements for conversion to Judaism would include, of course, circumcision, but also the adherence to the traditional customs at that time. So what are we talking about? Well, essentially, all the, uh, the, the Judaism, the Judaistic movement at that time would be essentially a combination of what was the original Hebrew Bible or, you know, the law of Moses, along with this thing called the Midrash or the Mishnah uh, and the Talmud. And I'm going to go through those uh, phrases in just a second. You would have a kind of people that were adhering to this new religion, and they would be called Pharisees. In fact, I tell you what, I'm going to switch up my notes just so you understand where these people, what they're talking about. When we talk about the Talmud, what are we talking about? The Talmud translates as instruction or learning. It comes from a root word that means to teach or to study. Right now, Jewish culture has the Talmud. In fact, they actually have two. There's one that's called the Babylonian Talmud, and then there's one that even predates that called the Jerusalem Talmud. And what the, the Talmud is is essentially this. It's the central text that is the primary source of Jewish religious law, 
but also Jewish theology. It is the all-encompassing book, scrolls, whatever you, whatever you want to call that, the collection of all of it together, the centerpiece of Jewish life. It is foundational to Jewish thought, to, ap- uh, to aspirations, to the daily life of the Jews. The Talmud encompasses all the teachings, the rabbinical teachings, plus what we would call um, the Hebrew law. The Hebrew law itself, the encompassing word for the Hebrew law is the halakha. The halakha means to walk or to go. It, it, it translates as to walk the walk or to walk the way. But the halakha is mainly law, all right? So the law, the Jewish law that's encompassed is this thing called the halakha, and it's broken down into different parts. Part of what makes up the halakha is the uh, Torah, which we, would re- which we would also call the Pentateuch, which is essentially the first five books of the Bible. I told you, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You have these five books, and we call those books of law. It's called the Pentateuch, because in those books, you're going to find a number of laws that God specifically writes out. He would take these laws, and that's what would, we would build the Jewish nation, the Hebrew nation, around that. They would observe it. They would uh, obey all of the uh, festivals, the events, the observances, uh, sacrifices, all the rest of it. And so you've got this thing that's called the Torah, which is kind of the literal law, but then you have something else. You have an oral Torah, which is called the Mishnah. The oral Torah is the Torah that's being passed down through the generations, not written. It's not by scribes. It's passed on by oral tradition. And as you can imagine, it begins to change a little bit. Now you have these oral laws that start to mesh, and many times it's difficult to know which is which. And so it's all encompassed into one thing that we call the halakha, which is this code, this code of law. But you can already begin to see the problem. There are 613 laws. 613, that's the number of laws that most Jewish cultures are going to observe. And they believe that it comes from the Halakha, which is both this Torah, right, and then the Mishnah. And these things pushed together are what's going to create the way in which things are guided in terms of um, life, in terms of if you have a question about what's going to happen and uh, if you've broken a law or what you need to do to become clean, all of that kind of stuff creates this law code, and it's enormous. And because of this, you now have people who specialize in it. So you have people who specialize in the Talmud because not everybody's going to understand it. Hence, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The difference between the two are these. The Pharisees are much more liberal, all right? The Sadducees are much more strict. The Sadducees actually believe and adhere more to a strict interpretation of the original Pentateuch. In fact, they question often whether the oral law should even belong close to it. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they love the oral law and they see no problem with it at all. For example, if we're going to talk about the law, uh, an eye for an eye, okay? So if we're talking about an eye for an eye, and you're talking to the Pharisees, what they're talking about is, is yes, because of the crime that you committed by looking or whatever it might be, we need the equivalent to what it would be for us to pluck out your eye. Which, for most people, is kind of a relief. Because <laughs> you're like, 
Thank you. You know, I don't want my eye gone. If you're talking to the Sadducees, no, no. That's a strict interpretation. So somebody got a spoon? You know, it's like we, you, they pluck out your eye, right? A hand for a hand, that type of, that type of thinking. That's where the Sadducees and the Pharisees are going to differ. The Sadducees are also those who do not believe in a bodily form of resurrection. And so they're going to be at war all the time with the Pharisees who do believe in that, right? But so much of this has to do with keeping the Talmud. They needed to keep the Talmud, and they needed these special people to sort of break it down for them, and it came out of the exile. So while all these Jews are over here in exile, up here in Babylon, there are several things that would happen. They weren't near their temple anymore. They didn't have a tabernacle. The center of their society was gone. So what were they to do? Well, this idea of synagogue comes about. And synagogue is essentially, it's just a meeting place. You know, when I was over in um, Israel a couple years ago, we got to stand in several different synagogues. Fascinating. Usually, it's like a square room or something, and you could see where the, the orator would, would stand in the middle, and they would teach. They would do exactly what I just read to you, where Jesus goes to the synagogue, because that's where every, all of life would gather around it. You'd have teachers. You'd have all sorts of different people. And so synagogue developed during Babylon, during the, the Babylonian exile. And if you look at how Jesus treats it, he respects it. He doesn't fight it at all. And if you look at the Apostle Paul, where does he teach? In the synagogue. That's a later development. So if you somehow were to go to Atlanta during the time of kings and then return from Atlanta after exile, you'd be like, what are these, what are these places? And the temple looks different. You know, it's like all this kind of stuff would be different. But now you also have those that are trying to keep the Talmud, which are going to be the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then what about the scribes? You hear that the scribes, Jesus is very critical about the scribes. Well, the scribes are in the Old Testament, but they're very different in the Old Testament. Scribes in the Old Testament are, like you would imagine, they are the ones who are going to be translating or at least um, making copies of different scriptures, specifically Old Testament scriptures. They would also serve as kind of like the secretaries of state in regard to business. We see that in 2 Samuel 8 and 1 Chronicles uh, 18. But even the prophet Jeremiah could be considered as a, as a scribe. You read in Jeremiah chapter 36, the Lord says to Jeremiah, take a scroll, write on it all the words that I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. Later in that chapter, though, you read these words. Then Jeremiah took another scroll. He gave it to Baruch, the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And so you see how scribes are supposed to work over here in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, what's the role of scribes? I mean, they still do some of that, but it makes them very knowledgeable. Now they know the word, and what does that do to any human being? It puffs them up. And now all of a sudden they become people who are also experts in the law. The ones who get to deliver and tell you and, and, and give you the judgment of what you ought to do or ought not to do, that, that type of thing. And so you have all these differences as you move along. Many times there would still be confusion, and so they have this thing called the Sanhedrin. It's a council. It's like a, it's like a court, right? And basically you would have all these different people, and they would be Pharisees and Sadducees, and they'd sit in these courts. You'd have a lower court and a higher court, Right? And if you had any trouble at all, you would go and you would approach the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin council would then give you some type of uh, decision. It was a majority rule type of uh, a system. 
And so you had that as well. And here's what's interesting. Jesus now steps into the equation. He comes to earth. Mark 12 says this. It says, one of the scribes came up to Jesus and heard, um, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that, he answered, he said, which commandment is most important of all? In other words, that's the first thing they want to know. They probably argued about it all the time. Which one's most important? Matthew 22, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says these words. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Listen, this was threatening. It's threatening. Jesus wasn't necessarily something that was welcome in this context he was a threat it's it's fascinating to me because um, as he continues to talk he's going to come back to over and over and over that he's not here to necessarily abolish the law on the sermon on the mount now remember the sermon on the mount when he's speaking he's speaking to a bunch of people that are eager to hear his words there might be some people in the audience no doubt there were some pharisees and sadducees who were you know kind of rubbing their chins etc but the main audience were to those who were looking for the messiah they were intrigued by who jesus was they were thirsty it says for any type of righteousness that type of thing so this is what he says He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. That should be like a huge relief. Whew. Some of your teaching's a little radical. I'm glad to hear that. He said, yeah, well, I did not come to abolish, but I came to fulfill. Now that's fascinating to me. How do we view this? How did we even get here? You see, I think this is the human tendency. I think the Pharisees and the Sadducees are no different than myself and you because they took principles that God gave and because they love the black and the white, they want the clarity of what things mean. They're like, okay, well, we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, so what if I travel really far? Does it it turn into work? And now because of that, they have to establish some type of rule and then the rule becomes law. And now you have a Talmud that has not only the original law, but it also has the oral law and the, and the judgments that are attached to it. We do the same. My challenge to all of you here at Echo is, uh, if you are a member of Echo, is this. What laws have you created that have boxed God in? What laws have you created that if we started to poke on it a little bit, you'd get really nervous? In fact, for some of you, they would become deal breakers. Think about this. Think about this. We are always in a process of trying to codify what God has given. But he gave us this old law which was meant to be just the blueprint. It had all the specifics. And he even tells this to Nicodemus who happened to be a good Pharisee. He's like, you've you've had the scriptures all this time. You don't know this stuff? I gave you all the specifics. But he would later tell Paul, In 2 Corinthians, he would say, whatever glory was given in that particular law, what's coming next is far more glorious. It's like having the blueprint and then seeing the building that it's created. Where do you want to live? 
And why is it that we take our life and we try to codify it and we try to say, no, I'm, this is what God wants and this is what God wants and this is what God wants. Why do we do that? What's interesting is, is in terms of the things that are concrete and black and white, we do it as parents and it's great. Think about it. Think about the way you either act as a parent or if you can really remember way back when, when you were a child, what were the rules for crossing the street? Look both ways, what else? Hold a hand, find an adult's hand to hold, right? I went and found a whole bunch of other rules. I love them. Always hold a hand of an adult when crossing the street. No shoes on the sofa, right? Always flush the toilet. There were actually lots of toilet rules. Uh, <laughs> turn out the lights when you're not using a room. Here's one we had for my son. You can just determine which of the sons you think it might be. No throwing balls in the house or anything that resembles a ball. <laughs> Always put something back where you found it. No going to bed angry or with each other. Do not spit on people. Always wear pants when friends are over. This is, this is, this is true. No drawing on walls. No fake crying. No running in the house with socks on. No karate. We do not light people on fire, even not in pretend. <laughs> no touching the TV remote. Like These are the rules we give to children, right? But how many of you still live by that? How many of you still live that way? Is it possible that God had to give a set of rules? Because we, spiritually speaking, we were adolescents. We were, we were pre-adolescent. We didn't know how to love each other, so we needed the blueprint. And we look at the blueprint. And he's saying, no, no, this is just the beginning. And just like we would do with our child, I don't hold another adult's hand when I cross the street unless it's my wife, right? I don't have to do that. We don't necessarily abide by those same rules, but now we live in such a way that we inherently know how to be safe when we cross the street. We inherently know what it means to protect the things in our house and not to put the shoes on the sofa and the rest of it. And there's this maturity, there's this transition that's happening. So let me poke on you a little. Why do you get so upset when worship is not your way? There's a fascinating project that I did, and I, I'm not going to, this isn't planned, but our church did a thing where they assigned a different book of the Bible, and they said, find out all the commandments to the, today's church in that book. Mine was Galatians. You know how many commands are given to the church corporately? I could, I could barely find any. There were plenty that were given to an individual. So then why do we codify how we do church? You really think Paul and the gospel writers and the other people in the New Testament decided to codify church? Who made all the rules that worship needs to be this way and not this way and this way and not this way? How about this? What about the Lord's Supper? What if I said to you, we're not going to do the Lord's Supper every Sunday? Some of you are already uncomfortable in your seat right now. I'm not going to say that. But what if I did? doesn't say to have it every day, every week. You cannot find a verse that says the Lord's Supper is supposed to be done every week. There's examples of it. The church in Corinth did it every week. The early church did it. Even John Calvin suggests that you do it every week. That's not a law. It's not a code. Are you creating your own Talmud? What about in your own life? What does it mean to be good? 
What does it mean that you can actually accept the grace of Jesus Christ? What are the codes that you put in place so that you can finally experience his love? If you think it means you have to do a whole bunch of things right, you're way off. That is your own code. Because we live by grace. And grace takes that code and trashes it. You do not have that code. You want the love of God? You want to draw closer and closer to Jesus Christ? You're going to have to look past a blueprint. You're going to have to look past the deal breakers of what church is or what it means to live a godly life. You're going to have to look past your own personal Talmud and see that God loves you unconditionally. And that is good news for me. It's good news for you because we would all fail. Let's pray. God, I love you so much. I love you so much. And I love the fact that you love me just as I am, and I'm a mess. Lord, each of us here, we, we just can't do it perfectly. And each of us here, we want so much to have this clarity, this, this, this black and white of knowing, am I supposed to do this or this, or not this or this? How do we arrive into such a place, Lord, where we can trust what love looks like? How do we take the scriptures and allow ourselves to be guided in such a way that we're going to do your will, the will that you would have us do, but at the exact same time, not box ourselves in with legalistic thinking, creating our own system of rules? Lord, we have watched how the world went when Jesus was here we see how he communicated to those who tried to uphold those traditions and rules in such a way that they would forget the greater good. God, help each of us here to remember what love looks like and feels like. Lord, there are people here today that are just not doing well. Can you please bring comfort? Can you bring peace? Lord, allow these people to know that you are in control. And even when things seem so out of control, that there is a plan that has been placed specifically for each of us. Can we trust that? Great God, I thank you so much for what you've given. I thank you for the Bible that you've given. I thank you for the New, the New Testament and the Old Testament. I thank you for all of it together. Allow us to see more clearly how you function throughout all of it how you drew us closer and closer to Jesus Christ. Help us to understand that. Help us to respond to that. Thank you so much for Jesus and for the sacrifice for our sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray.